God is more worthy of you to have certainty in Him. Your certainty in God is actually the basis for having certainty in everything. You can start to apply radical skepticism to every single thing out there. How do I know that my reasoning that is generated by these three pounds of organic matter in my skull has any ability to latch onto ontological truths about the nature of the universe? And the only escape from that kind of radical skepticism is to have a foundation that allows you to have certainty in all of these other things. And that foundation is belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Dogma Disrupted. Today we're talking about atheism and the crisis of faith. Um, and just a quick reminder for everybody, if you're not already subscribed to email notifications, then please do so, so you're able to catch all the episodes as they are released. Now, to talk about atheism and the crisis of faith, we have a very esteemed guest with us here, Yaqeen Institute's own Dr. Nazir Khan. Uh, Dr. Nazir Khan, in addition to being the president of Yaqeen Canada, uh, and the Director of Research Strategy at Yaqeen Institute. Um, he also has many other hats besides that. He is a neuroradiologist and a professor at McMaster University. And he is somebody who has uh, extensive expertise and experience in uh, the Quranic sciences and in Islamic theology as well. So somebody who combines um, some very important fields and thus uh, and a tremendous asset to Yaqeen Institute being able to sort of put reason and science and faith and theology all in conversation with each other, which will be essential to our conversation today. Welcome, Dr. Nazar. Jazakallah khair, Imam Tom, and wa alaikum wa rahmatullah. Thanks for having me. So let's get right into it. Um, we have a, a sequence or a series of questions that kind of walks people through maybe the most fundamental things that they might wonder when they're considering the supernatural, the divine, um, you know, religion and faith. And the first one that is just a perennial question that comes to me and every other imam out there, and I'm sure you as well. How do we know that God exists? Right. Okay. So that's a huge uh, topic of discussion. And, um, you know, uh, there's uh, a lot of resources on Yaqeen related to this. But one of the things that uh, I want us to do is just take a step back and, and try to build a framework. So when somebody says, <clears throat> how do we know that God exists? The important question to go back to is how do we know anything at all, right? And that's the topic of epistemology. Epistemology is how do we know the things that we know? And there is a Quranic epistemology. The Quran provides us with a framework of how to establish knowledge. And when we encounter somebody saying, you know, prove to me God exists, the important question to first ask is, well, how do you understand proof? How do you know that you haven't already encountered proof, but you've uh, defined proof in a way that uh, already excludes the possibility of God's existence from the get-go? So to give you an example of this, um, you know, I, uh, I remember once seeing a debate between uh, a theist and an atheist, and the theist asked the atheist, you know, uh, you know, what would you have to see in order to believe that God exists? And the atheist said, uh, you know, I, I really wouldn't believe that God exists until, uh, you know, I, I saw him directly and, uh, and he spoke to me. And then the theist said, okay, if you saw that, would you then accept the existence of God? And the atheist thought about it for a moment and said, actually, probably I, I would think I'm just having a bad hangover uh, and I'm just hallucinating. And that's very interesting because the Quran describes that attitude. So the Quran mentions in, in Surah Al-Hijr, the 15th chapter of the Quran, وَلَوْ فَتَحْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ بَابًا مِّنَ السَّمَاءِ فَظَلُّوا فِيهِ يَعْرُجُونَ لَقَالُوا إِنَّمَا سُكِّرَتْ أَبْصَارُنَا بَلْ نَحْنُ قَوْمٌ مَسْحُورُونَ Even if we were to open up the gates of the heavens for them, and they were to ascend up into the, the heavens, or they witnessed the angels ascend up into the heavens, according to another tafsir, they would still say, our eyes are hallucinating. You know, we're, we're, we're hallucinating, we've been bewitched, right? So even in that context, they still wouldn't accept it. So that's the problem that the, the Quran is pointing out. It deals with atheism by identifying the underlying problem, which is the problem of radical skepticism. You have to have a coherent epistemology. You have to know how to establish knowledge in order to first go about the conversation of uh, discussing uh, the existence of the Creator and our purpose in our lives. And that's really significant for uh, for several reasons, one of which I think I encounter, and I'm sure you do too, um, is once you kind of shine the light on well, how can we talk about knowledge at all? How can we talk about proof at all? 
you're able to hold people to some sort of coherence and consistency. And what we usually find is that atheists or radical skepticism, um, it's not coherent and it's definitely not consistent. What we find is that people, when it comes to certain areas of their life, when it comes to believing in countries that exist that they've never seen before or been to, or believing in things that happened in the past or believing in certain, uh, you know, uh, let's say accepted or received scientific information, um, they're not nearly as skeptical and they don't nearly have the level of, uh, of skepticism or they don't demand the same level of evidence for those sorts of claims. And yet, when it comes to the divine, when it comes to the life after death, when it comes to anything that even approaches spiritual or religious, all of a sudden the skepticism is ramped way up. And now we have the most demanding and stringent sort of requirements to, to believe in anything. Um, so can we talk maybe about being consistent with your epistemology? What sort of um, are some, uh, maybe if we're holding other people to task, why should they consider um, sort of a, an epistemology other than the one that they are currently espousing? How is the epistemology of atheists inconsistent? And what would it look like if it was consistent, maybe? Right. So on that last question, uh, what would it look like if it was consistent? There's actually an article by a, an atheist philosopher, Richard Gardner, um, <clears throat> who calls on fellow atheists to be moral abolitionists. And what, what is a moral abolitionist? It's somebody who uh, denies the existence of morality or abolishes morality, somebody who believes that good and evil uh, do not exist. And his argument is, he's like, look, we as atheists, we deny the existence of God because we say we, we have no empirical evidence of God. We can't see him or hear him or perceive him directly. We should, for the same reasons, deny the existence of moral good and, 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 and moral evil. And he's not a theist making this argument uh, to atheists. He's, he's genuinely arguing uh, that it, it would be philosophically consistent for atheists to do this. And that raises a, a larger issue, which is going back to the topic of radical skepticism. One of the things that's very interesting that uh, Sheikh Hussam ibn Taymiyyah uh, mentions, uh, one of the famous uh, Muslim theologians, he talks about this, this phenomenon in, in Arabic, the term that they used was safsata, which is, uh, you know, to correspond to radical skepticism, sophistry. And he says people tend to apply this in one domain of, uh, of their life, but they don't, you, you'll rarely find somebody who applies it in, in every domain. And another example of that is, you know, there's a philosophy called uh, solipsism. Solipsism is the idea that nothing exists other than my own mind. And you see this in uh, examples in popular culture, like the idea that you're plugged into the matrix, right? You're just right. in a, a machine. Everybody else around you is a computer simulation. Um, you know, that that is uh, a manifestation of solipsism. And it's, you know, it's philosophically irrefutable. If you were to say that I'm not going to believe the world exists until somebody gives me a convincing philosophical argument uh, to refute solipsism, you'd remain a solipsist. And yet, at the end of the day, the majority of people go on living their lives on a day-to-day -day basis without uh, this kind of existential panic about whether the external world exists or not. And why is that the case? Well, Muslim theologians would argue that the reason that's the case is because we have the fitrah. We have a natural way of, of uh, processing the world in, in a way that's meaningful, right? And we have a natural inner constitution. Part of that is the uh, inner disposition to believe in Allah subhanahu wa and to worship him alone. And part of that is looking at the world and, uh, and understanding that uh, there is such a thing as good and bad. There is such a thing as cause and effect. The external world is real. All of these things are given to us through the fitrah. It's that prepackaged software that the human mind comes with, uh, and that is necessary in order for a person to make sense of reality. Hmm. And that's fascinating, and that's that's also um, bore out by history. I mean, the English language, you know, just a few hundred years ago, we used to refer to somebody who was sort of a deviant in in moral terms as an atheist, without necessarily that having a connotation of a specific program of theological beliefs. There was an understanding that uh, your theological beliefs created capacity or uh, hindered capacity for moral action. And so if you don't believe in the foundations of morality, then you can't be moral in the first place, which is something that is um, extremely significant and, and uncommon wisdom these days when we're saying, I think the mantra of one of the many mantras of our times is that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're a good person. And uh, what you're saying and what I'm saying is the opposite, that actually you can't 
be a good person. You can't even define what goodness is if you don't have some sort of theological belief. And that the atheists that are uh, more consistent and more sort of rigorous and coherent actually take it to their logical conclusion, which is that, well, you can't believe in any morality and therefore everything is just a human construct. Maybe this dovetails in with postmodernism and things like that. Um, that is very, very fascinating. So a lot of atheists, would you say these days, the, the ones who don't um, take it to its logical conclusion, what's going on there? How can we account for it? Is this just sentimentality on their part? Is it just culture? Why do we find that most atheists aren't willing to take it to that level of logical consistency that they, you know, claim that they can still be moral and claim that they still, you know, sort of adhere to these things? Yeah, that's a, a really good uh, question. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing that occurred to me as you were describing that relationship with uh, morality and uh, and and belief, uh, you know, it's 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 so expansive. Actually, it's you know, there, there's there's multiple ways in which faith and, and morality intersect. Right. So um, just to touch on that before I get to that, that question that you mentioned at the end, uh, moral ontology is one aspect of the relationship between uh, between uh, faith and morality. So the idea that we have in order to affirm that there is such a thing as good and bad, uh, we need to have uh, a belief in, in, in a creator, right? Belief that there are certain actions that lead us towards him and certain actions which distance us from him. Otherwise, if the, if the universe is just a collection of particles, then there's just different arrangements of particles. There is no good and bad. And the other is moral epistemology, right? Which is that uh, once we establish uh, that there is such a thing as good and bad. How do we know which particular actions are good and which particular actions are bad? And of course, human beings have the fitra, so we have a natural intuition. Okay, murder is wrong, stealing is wrong, being kind to one's neighbors is good. But in order for these notions to be developed uh, and and to be uh, you know cultivated, you need the uh, the institution of faith, and you need the uh, the source of revelation to allow a person to to develop them. And that leads to the third one, which is moral psychology, which is, you know, where does a person find the motivation to undergo that uh, tremendously difficult process of um, self-sacrifice and self-purification uh, in order to become a better version of themselves, right? What, what we find now in popular culture is the mantra is commonly just be yourself, just accept yourself. The, the idea that there could be something about you that is worth uh, changing that is worth developing to become a better version of yourself is is completely missing. Uh, so that's another aspect. And then you know, and, uh, the fourth one is is moral sociology, which is the ability of people to come together with a shared value system. Uh, you know, that is is something that is needs a, a source of guidance that people can turn to. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, yeah, just a quick, quick comment. And that last one is usually, I think, what people in modern times, they feel it more. Um, they, they feel that they you have even atheists and agnostics that want to be part of a church, for example, because they, um, they they know somewhere inside of themselves that they need a community. They're maybe lukewarm about the theological commitments, but they recognize the need for that. And the only real way to sort of establish that is based off some sort of common moral ground. It's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is uh, one of the reasons why the COVID pandemic uh, was so devastating for, for people uh, in, in many different aspe uh, aspects of life uh, is because people were already um, stripped of sources of stability in their life before the pandemic came about. So uh, if you think about what are the sources of stability in a person's life, there's faith, family, community, and you've had a, a gradual process of faith being eroded by the institutions, uh, by, by the ideologies of secularism and atheism, family and community being eroded by radical individualism and liberalism. And so now all of a sudden, these uh, immense sources of stress and, 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 and tribulation come about in a person's life, and there's no sources of, uh, of stability. There's just all these destabilizing forces. And that's led to a lot of people talking about the contemporary meaning crisis, right? People mm -hmm. are just unable to cope with um, that level of... Uh, uh, of, of uncertainty about the future, that level of, of stress, uh, and so on. So when it, 
going back to that question that you raised about, you know, what is the reason why people don't uh, pursue these uh, these deeper questions of life, and why why is it that people remain in a state of atheism? It's multifactorial. Uh, there's there's not one single uh, point that you can mention. The Quan mentions a whole typology of different uh, psychological dispositions, different attitudes that lead people uh, astray. Um, but but one of them is is the state of ghafla, the state of heedlessness. And if you look at society. Uh, today, we've got, um, you know, the biggest industries are related to entertainment, and it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, about manufacturing a state of permanent heedlessness for people so that they're n- never able to contemplate the higher questions of life. Why do I exist? What happens to me after I die? You know, uh, uh, what, what, what makes my life worth living? Uh, these are important questions that every human being has to grapple with, and you either have coherent answers to these questions or you have incoherent answers. And you can disguise the fact that you have incoherent answers to these questions by remaining in a state of perpetual heedlessness and never uh, forcing yourself to confront those uh, those, those questions. Um, and, you know, Imam Ibn al-Qayyim in his work, uh, Wa'ab al-Sayyib, he says, um, Beautiful line. He says, He says, know that in the heart there is a void and emptiness that nothing will ever fill except the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That spiritual connection, connecting back with our creator and fulfilling our purpose in life as custodians on this earth uh, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? That... uh, that can never be replaced by anything else. So no matter what uh, contemporary ideologies people surround themselves with or uh, whether they choose to deaden that impulse with just, you know, uh, zombie scrolling on their phone or spending hours and hours on uh, Netflix binging or whatever it is that people do, there is that emptiness inside that is crying out uh, for, uh, you know, uh, for, for fulfillment from, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's immensely profound, and I love the examples that you used because uh, one thing that I always take issue with is the sort of the mainstreaming of um, substance-based language. So we we use the words binging, we use the word addict, and and these are things that um, are literally descriptive of how people interact with their social media or their entertainment or whatever it is. Um, even the idea, I always bristled at the idea of food porn, right? Like this is another sort of way in which words are important and they desensitize us and they, but they also show something else. They show sort of the, especially with the latter example, more, maybe the objectification of the world that we live in or our relationships to our food or to other things. And it shows sort of our, how much we've just surrounded ourselves with just distractions, as you said, heedlessness related to this. You know, we began the conversation talking about proof and talking about evidence. And there is a school of thought out there that belief is not sort of as much a cognitive function of evidence and proof, but is rather a moral function, right, of, of sort of what are, what, what do you have that not believing is not about having insufficient proof, but actually it's a moral failing. And there's some sort of weight to this. You can justify it with certain parts of the Quran. Uh, in Surah Al-An'am, Allah discusses this phenomenon as well. What do you think about this? Is this part of the typology that you mentioned? Um, is this something else that we should consider? Are these things, is it an either or? Is it actually both are true? How does, how much of belief is a cognitive battle and how much is a, is it a moral one? So this is a really deep question and it's something that, um, you know, I've spent <laughs> so much of my life researching this this particular topic, and it's it's the topic that's related to uh, the my current uh, PhD in Islamic theology that I'm doing, uh, related to exactly what what you just mentioned. So uh, the reason why it first came to mind, you know, is I would notice that people have what's called this evidentialist approach uh, to faith, um, this idea that that belief or faith is something that is, um, you know, something you infer as a result of a uh, long sequence of almost like mathematical calculations, uh, right? It's logical proofs that are like mathematical proofs. 
It's like and, 10, 10, 10 minute shahada, just, you know, yeah. plan A, B, C, and you'll lead. Right. And that's all it is. Right. And, yeah. uh, and then, you know, there's, there's a lot of problems with that approach. And I remember, you know, as a undergraduate student at, at university, seeing people standing at the da'wah booth and somebody comes to ask about Islam and they spend like, you know, 30 minutes talking to them about what is necessary existence and everything that begins to exist must have a cause. And then they start debating about the nature of the Big Bang and what different cosmologists have said. And the if it gets really complicated, they get into the bored guth vilenkin theorem of whether, you know, the Big, Bang, the Big Bang implies that the universe had a beginning or whether, it, you know, there was existence before that. And then at the end of the day, the guy walks away and it's like, what have you explained to that person about Islam? Absolutely nothing. Right. Um, and so this, you know, elicited my my interest in kind of probing this from from the perspective of, again, Quranic epistemology. How does the Quran say that uh, faith should be established? And it, it doesn't make sense to have that approach where you uh, you view faith as the outcome of some kind of uh, logical calculus or, or mathematical operations where. You know, it's it's about you know proving to somebody this complicated mathematical formula, and presto, there now you're going to be a believer, because what that means is that if somebody hasn't understood it yet, uh, it's a failure, like not understanding a mathematical proof. Well, why would their salvation be dependent on understanding some complicated mathematical formula? And then I found that Muslim scholars talked about this. So. Ibn Hazm wrote an entire uh, risad or, or, or uh, epistle on this topic, Al-Bayan fi Haqiqat al-Iman, explaining uh, why it, it, it is the case that uh, Iman does not need to be built on philosophical arguments. Al-Shahr um, al a famous uh, heresiologist, Muslim scholar who died 548 Hijri, uh, he talked about this as well, and he said something that's very interesting. He said that, you know, when you look at a lot of these philosophical proofs that people give for the existence of God, my certainty in God's existence is greater than my certainty in any of these premises that they're mentioning uh, in their philosophical proof, right? You know, uh, and it's typically the case that you use what is more obvious to prove what is less obvious, rather than reasoning from what is less obvious to prove what is more obvious. And so he mentions this statement that Muslim scholars have said, which is, uh, that I came to know of things through my Lord, and rather than knowing of my Lord through other things. And I thought, well, that's very profound. Now, how exactly do you justify that? And uh, one scholar uh, who quoted both Ibn Hazm and uh, Shahrastani and, and many others on this topic and further developed this discussion is, again, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah. And he explains in, in a very um, beautiful way how he links this with um, the story of Musa السلام, and Fir'aun in the Qur'an. And I, I don't know if uh, if I'm just kind of going on, if you want to pause oh, no, me there. Please. No, 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 okay. no, please. So, so what he he mentions about this story, uh, you know, Fir'aun is an example of a, uh, of an atheist in the Quran, um, because he he denies uh, the existence of uh, a creator in the heavens, and he says, "Oh, Haman, build me this, uh, you know, uh, skyscraper, build me this structure so that I can uh, uh, look up into the heavens." Like hyper empiricism, uh, he's like, "I should be able to go up and look." If he's right. you know, really meaning that, yeah. Very empiricist. In fact, um, uh, one of the uh, phrases he says is, ma urikum illa ma ara. I only show you that which I, I, I see, right? Um, but he says about Musa, I, I, I think that he's a liar, that there's a God in the heavens, right? Now, in the dialogue between Musa السلام, and Fir'aun, uh, when Fir'aun asks Musa, السلام, Wama Rabbul what is this Lord? of the universe. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah says that uh, Fir'aun is not asking like a, a legitimate question about what is the nature of God and tell me about the divine attributes. He's asking a rhetorical question, you could say. He's, at, he's phrasing his denial of God in the form of a, quest, a question. And um, what's interesting is Musa salam's reply, the Lord of the heavens and the earth and whatever is between them, if you have yaqeen, right? So what does that mean? We're yaqeen institute. What, what, is, what does that mean? Musa is saying, if you have yaqeen. So Ibn Taymiyyah says it's very interesting that Musa doesn't say, if you have yaqeen, 
certainty in this particular thing or that particular thing, but he leaves it right. universal. In other it words, almost seems to be putting the cart before the horse, at least from a modern sort of evidentiary position. It's right. like, shouldn't Yaqeen come later? And Musa's kind of saying, if you have Yaqeen, then it will manifest in some sort of way. Yes, and I'm going to get to that uh, point as well, because that's a very important observation you just made. But he says, if you have Yaqeen, and he leaves it uh, uh, unqualified, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, uh, as Ibn Taymiyyah says, it's whatever Yaqeen you have in anything, uh, God is more worthy of you to have certainty in Him, right? Mm -hmm. the, your certainty in God is actually the basis for having certainty in everything. And how do you illustrate that? Going back to the concept of radical skepticism. You can start to apply radical skepticism to every single thing out there, whether it's cause and effect, whether it's the existence of uh, good and bad, whether even your own logical reasoning, you could say, mm -hmm. you know, how do I know that my uh, reasoning that is generated by these three pounds of organic matter in my skull has any uh, ability to latch onto uh, uh, ontological truths about the nature of the universe. You could be skeptical about all of that. And the only escape from that kind of radical skepticism is to have a foundation that allows you to have certainty in all of these other things. And that foundation is belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what allows you and guarantees the reliability of your senses so you can believe in the external world. It guarantees the reliability of your moral faculties so that you can pursue good and abstain from evil. It guarantees all the other things that human beings take as certain. Those are all founded upon that fundamental yaqeen, that fundamental certainty in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's no surprise that when people have removed that foundation, we are now seeing rampant radical skepticism in every single domain of society because the very structures of reality, the structures of certainty in people's minds are just collapsing without that fundamental foundation. And that's, it's no surprise that we have the rise of postmodernism now, which says that there is no objective truth. Right? It's taking radical skepticism and applying it to the concept of truth itself. You have your truth, I have my truth, there is no objective truth, there is no overarching narrative. Right, And this is all from the corollaries and the logical entailments of taking out the foundation that gives yaqeen to everything, which is tawheed, which is our connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Interesting. Okay, so did you want to comment about the sort of putting the cart before the horse and the sequence of things? Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, thanks for reminding me about that yeah. point. This, there's so many different ways. Another question. But I, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's that's also a really interesting point that you raised because the other way that uh, people approach belief that is a little bit uh, problematic is they assume that um, you know you're going to present some kind of argument, and if it's convincing, I'll have no choice but to believe. Right? So it's called doxastic involuntarism. That's the uh, you know, fancy term for it. The idea that beliefs are involuntary, that, they're, that they aren't a, the result of a choice. So you know, when I uh, wrote this article on atheism and, and radical skepticism, uh, one Muslim university student was very astute. You know, he read the, the article and he said, it sounds like to me the point that you're making about how we have to pursue meaning in life, we have to look for coherent answers, it sounds like to me what you're saying is that belief in God is a choice. And I'm like, that's exactly right. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, فَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيُؤْمِنُ وَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيَكْفُرُ Right? It comes down to a person's choice. You can choose to see life as meaningless. You can choose to be uh, a nihilist and, and, and just embrace meaninglessness. Or you can choose to see your life as having a purpose. You can choose to pursue meaningful answers to the big questions of life or you can choose not to, right? And you can choose to believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and choose that foundation of yaqeen, which brings order and certainty into all other domains of life, or you can choose to turn your back on it and not have any way of rendering reality meaningful. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's and that's why it, it, it ties back to, to that point of yaqeen being a choice for, for the individual. Yeah, and it has such far-reaching effects. I mean, as we're saying that, we can't really cleave morality from theology as people would like to do. And so to reject one is to reject the other. And it is a choice that people make when people are choosing sort of um, atheism or they're choosing sort of to reject uh, the afterlife as a phenomenon, as a possibility. 
they in fact are choosing to reject all of the moral prescriptions that come with that, the, the idea of a moral life, of righteousness, of piety, all those things cease to have meaning if you reject, uh, if you reject the theological basis for it. So that's, um, that has <laughs> tremendous, tremendous consequences. Um, one question that occurs to me is, does this type of yakin that we're talking about, if, if, if faith is something that is maybe more of a moral disposition rather than, you know, just being shown a bunch of mechanistic proofs. Um, what's the result of that faith? Is the result of that faith just um, faith in general? Is it a vague faith of something? Or is there something more specific that's entailed there? Um, is it belief in Islam? Does it get that far? Or is there sort of an intermediary? Well, now you've sort of been brought to the door of the phenomenon of belief writ large, and now you have to sort out, well, why Islam as opposed to other sort of iterations of claimants to, you know, representing the true faith? That's a very uh, profound question. And one of the ways to approach it from the Islamic perspective is to look back at the concept of uh, the fitrah, the natural human disposition, and the role of wahi, the role of revelation, and how those two work together. You know, uh, we we have the phenomenon of the hunafa, uh, people who are truth seekers before the coming of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and they their truth seeking behavior led them in different directions, but it all collectively led them away from uh, idolatry. It led them to a recognition that there has to be uh, a message that that is going back to the, the, the prophethood of previous prophets, there's certain general kind of um, inclinations that they came to uh, on the basis of that, uh, you know, that path of, of seeking truth. Um, so you could say that there are certain general things that uh, the fitrah can, can lead to, but in order for that to actually come about in the form of uh, articulated uh, uh, Islamic beliefs, that's where you need uh, revelation to guide the, the human fitrah, because the unguided human fitrah can be subject to perversion from many different sources, from societal pressure, from parental upbringing, from uh, you know, uh, culture, all different forces that can lead a person away from those uh, natural moral uh, predispositions that would uh, otherwise take them to in the direction of the truth. Um, but you know, what's interesting is, you know, even more specifically, if you look at what empirical evidence in the field of developmental psychology uh, shows, there's an interesting book by uh, Justin Barrett uh, uh, called Born Believers, where he actually talks about some uh, psychology experiments that were done on, uh, on uh, children uh, growing up and, and looking at uh, whether there is an inborn faculty of uh, belief or whether there is a natural tendency towards uh, believing in God. And, uh, you know, you can, sh you can see very early on, even, uh, you know, from, from infancy, you can see that babies prefer to look at images where uh, shapes are moving around uh, purposefully rather than randomly, right? There's a natural human kind of uh, inclination towards teleology or purpose. And then that kind of manifests uh, at, you know, further developmental stages um, in, in, in the belief in, in, in a creator, right? And one of the things that's very interesting that he talks about is experiments that were done uh, with uh, People, uh, children growing up in uh, predominantly atheistic societies, right? Like if you look at Scandinavian countries where uh, the level of atheism is much higher than the level of belief, and you you go there and you you start interviewing some of these children. One of the experiments that uh, you know uh, really stuck with me is one where the child was just giving the right answer about every single thing about uh, uh, the the divine nature, about the attributes of God, that God knows all things, God can do everything, and he was getting all the answers right despite being like six years old and growing up in a society that has no uh, formal belief in, in God and his parents who are atheists, they, they were surprised and they kind of turned to him and were like, Johnny, like, do you, do you believe in God? And he's like, of course, mom. And that kind of like uh, threw the parents for a loop. Right. Um, so you have this kind of natural tendency uh, that is, uh, that's mentioned and, and something that's talked about in uh, cognitive science of religion, but in order for it to be uh, fully cultivated uh, and developed appropriately, that's where revelation uh, comes in. 
we could say that it's similar to language, right? I mean, we're, we're hardwired, uh, at least according to maybe the predominant theory in linguistics, we're hardwired with um, the ability for language. We're primed for language. We, we come into the world as a languaged being ready to go. And, but yeah, it still takes practice, refinement, you know, and, and some sort of input uh, from outside of ourselves in order to develop that capacity further. Um, yeah, that, so, that's, um, oh, sorry, I was just going to comment on that. It, it's something that it, um, has been referred to by Noam Chomsky as the poverty of stimulus, right? You, mm-hmm. you look at the fact that a child with a seemingly very, very little instruction is able to just naturally comprehend certain uh, grammatical principles and acquire language uh, with with very little uh, direct uh, in, in instruction, just, just purely from exposure. And that's led people to say, that, well, there's some kind of language acquisition device, right? There's some kind of internal inborn mechanism that allows people to be uh, able to naturally receive that. But you still have to be exposed to language. If you look at examples of feral children who grow up in the wild or, uh, you know, uh, uh, away from uh, from any human communication, that faculty of of, of, of language becomes uh, totally disrupted, right? Because they haven't uh, received that. So mm-hmm. having revelation allows you to um, to build on that 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 fitra, right? And to uh, and that's one of the things that um, it's it's an interesting tafsir of ayat uh, nur that the scholars mentioned that nurun ala nur, light upon light, is the light of revelation combined with the light of the fitra. Yeah, mashallah. I mean, uh, that that leads me down a, a long tangent. I don't want to get into, but for me, I've always I'm always fascinated by languages and, and linguistics, and I think that linguistics or the history of human language is one of the strongest proofs for some sort of. If we're going to go through the evidentiary sort of model of belief, you know, the fact that languages have gone from highly synthetic and very complicated and then sort of, I don't want to say devolved, but simplified into analytic languages over time. I mean, this is something actually that I was shocked to read. I can't remember if it was Martin Ling's or Fazl Rahman. I think it was Fazl Rahman mentioned it in one of his books. Um, and I was shocked to, to, to also see it written there. And uh, it's something that indicates that there's this very interesting dynamic between what we're given and what we come into the world with and then what we're expected to do with it. I think that's sort of what this phenomenon and others that we've mentioned sort of illustrates. Um, I just want to mention one clarification about, um, because we're talking about, you know, faith being a moral capacity. And I want to mention that it's not an either or, that it's a moral capacity, and therefore there's no role for proofs and evidence and uh, intellectual arguments. Mm -hmm. Those do have a role, but those have a role as ayat, right, as signs. Right. So once you understand that there's a spiritual capacity for faith, there's a moral capacity for faith, there's an intellectual capacity for faith, but those work together. Right. And these these things are in in conversation. So in order to make the right moral choices and and to have the right spiritual attitude towards uh, belief in God, um, you know, you you also have to. use your reason correctly, right? And, and reason about the facts of the world in, in an appropriate manner. So these things work in concert. Uh, and it's not an either or thing where it's, oh, it's the fitra. It's, there's no room for, for reason or, or rationality. No, that, that's an excellent intervention. And we could maybe say that um, the inputs, right, such as the, the signs, the ayat, the evidence, etc., um, it's important, but it has to be received. And so right. your sort of moral disposition or your intact fitra is the thing that would either receive it if you've at least kept it enough intact or if you've blown it and, and covered it and failed to maintain it, then it's like, you know, putting tools in the hands of a baby. They're not going to do anything with it. It's actually right. sort of lost on them. Because um, the believer that is morally and spiritually prepared will see the proof for God in every facet of mm-hmm. life, whereas somebody who is morally and spiritually unprepared, uh, no matter how many proofs you you confront them with, uh, they'll still find a way to uh, encounter that with radical skepticism. Very good. So that still doesn't answer our question, though, as to why Islam over other right. faiths or other sort of claimants to r- represent faith. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think when you follow the path of looking for uh, meaningful answers, right, and just contemplate the big questions of life, right? So you have the spiritual questions, what makes my life worth living? Why am I here? What happens to me after I die? You have moral questions of life, what, uh, what is right and what is wrong? What, what is the consequence of doing right versus doing wrong? And then you have the intellectual questions, right? Why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, why have we been given these minds that are able to uncover the truths of the universe? If you're looking for a system of belief that is able to address all of these collectively, then what I maintain is that the Islamic uh, system, uh, the uh, Islamic theology provides the most comprehensive and coherent answers to the fundamental questions of life. And it does so from its basis, which is Tawheed. So when you understand belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and worship of, of one creator, then we understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put us on this earth for a purpose, right? And our purpose is to grow in our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to worship him alone and to take care of his creation. And that brings about the moral capacity, right? There are certain consequences to our actions to the extent to which we are serving as a custodian on this earth and serving as dutiful servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, in that capacity of caring for his creation. And that also brings about the intellectual aspect, right? Because the minds that we have been blessed with serve a purpose, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught Adam the names of all things. That, that intellectual cognitive component allows Adam and his descendants to use their, their, their uh, faculties of understanding and comprehension to understand the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to understand the divine nature of uh, the divine names and attributes, even though we have not seen Allah subhanahu wa directly, we can understand him and understand and come closer to him through our worship. So intellectual, spiritual, and moral are united in that uh, fu fundamental foundation of Islam, which is Tawheed. Excellent. No, that's a very, very nice exposition. Um, you mentioned something that, that reminded me of another question that comes up often. You mentioned the tests that are done on sort of young children, even infants, and how they naturally gravitate towards order. Um, but once people become adults and once they're sort of exposed to other ideologies or, or even just their culture, they come to associate religion with chaos and actually, mm -hmm. um, and actually with permitting of evil. And that takes two forms. So there's sort of the theological question or the question of theodicy which is why does God allow evil to exist in the first place that a lot of people use as a supposed proof as to why there isn't um, any sort of creator. And then there's the other sort of charge, which is that, well, religion in itself is a cause of disorder and violence uh, and bloodshed. So maybe we can tackle each of those two things separately. So uh, the first one, if there is a God, why does evil even exist? Right. So Yaqeen has three articles on this topic, and I'm going to give like a 30-second <laughs> summary. Um, so this is one thing that's, that's really fascinating about this is how the Quran addresses this question in the very first story that is presented in the Quran, right, which is the story of the creation of Adam, and that begins with a conversation between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the angels. And the angels say, Are you going to place on this earth a creation that uh, you know, spreads corruption and, and, and bloodshed? So the angels add this, this question that they asked Allah subhanahu wa And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I know that which you do not know. Now, Adam uh, uh, is taught the names of all things, as I mentioned. And you know, one of the... Uh, uh, tafasir, or one, one of the explanations of that, is that uh, this is the, the capacity of language that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave Adam and we see that mentioned elsewhere in the Quran عَلَّمَهُ bayan, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave human beings the capacity for exposition of meaning through uh, the vehicle of language. Now, um, one of the things that's interesting is when uh, Adam uh, presents the names to the angels, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to the angels, did I not tell you that I know the unseen of the heavens and the earth? And I know that which you make apparent and what that which you were concealing. So what were the angels making apparent? They were making apparent the destructive capacity of human beings, the capacity of human beings for uh, corruption and, and violence in their question. That's what was, was apparent. What, was, what did they conceal? Unintentionally, they concealed the fact uh, that uh, human beings have a uh, constructive capacity, that they have a capacity for good. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is showing that that capacity for good comes about through 
the human gift of of knowledge, the ability to understand um, uh, the guidance that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed. But it goes even deeper than that. And this is something where uh, Imam Ibn al-Qayyim and uh, actually Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali as well, they mention a very interesting connection between the divine names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and human morality, right? So um, human beings, when we uh, uh, strive to understand what it means when, Allah, when, when we hear that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the most merciful, the most generous, how do we understand those things? This was a question that uh, Dr. Jeffrey Lang, who is an atheist and uh, had this kind of question about the problem of evil and suffering, he was confronted with this. And when he read the Quranic uh, approach to this topic, it's what uh, caused him to embrace Islam. And he wrote a book, Even Angels Ask, right? Even angels are asking this mm -hmm. question. Um, well, if a human being uh, did, did not have the opportunity to show mercy to those who are suffering, how would they ever learn what it means to be merciful? And if they never learned what it means to be merciful, how would they come closer in their understanding of the one who is the most merciful? If a human being never uh, encountered poverty, how would they have the opportunity to show generosity? And if they never had the opportunity to show generosity, how would they develop that capacity and therefore come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the one who is the most generous? So Imam Ibn al-Qayyim, he says, just like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has um, ascribed to himself these attributes of, 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 of beauty and perfection, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves those who act according to what those attributes entail. Right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves those who act according to what those attributes entail. And so the one who uh, is merciful to others comes closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is the source of mercy. The one who is generous with others comes closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is the source of all generosity. And that in a nutshell shows you how Tawheed, the fundamental foundation in Islam, explains all of life's big questions, including the problem of, of human suffering. Well, that's fascinating because uh, it's it's a common sort of philosophical retort. Well, things are known by the by their opposites, and so if you want to know good, then you must know evil by default. But I think you know, what you're saying is that Islamic theology offers sort of you know furthers that argument and says not only can you not know good in the world, you can't know God who is good, right? The, there would be no yeah. sort of register upon which to make sense of the fact that He's merciful, loving, you know cherishes you, you know, uh, all these sorts of things, uh, without having experienced that sort of thing, uh, and its opposite in the dunya. Okay. Well, yeah, how about put, yeah. uh, and the only thing I would add to that is I find it very interesting that the one who, uh, is, uh, often famously associated with the problem of evil is the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus. And Epicurus is also associated with the philosophy of hedonism that he, mm -hmm. he believed that, um, what it means to live a good life is to maximize your pleasure. And the fundamental fallacy in the problem of evil is the idea that um, suffering cannot serve any purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And that you would expect that kind of fallacy to come from somebody who believed that life's only purpose is just to maximize uh, pleasure. Sure. Also, a very interesting thing for the nerds out there that Talal Asad explores in, in Formations of the Secular, because he sees this as a fundamental sort of part of secularization is the demeaning and even profaning of suffering. Um, and he talks extensively both about how those things shift over time and then three particular sort of um, situations that defy this sort of modern way of of thinking about suffering, which is only something to be minimized, only something to be resisted, only something to be overcome. Uh, incidentally, he talks about the martyr, right? The figure of the mm -hmm. martyr. Um, he talks about childbirth, right? And that might be something a little remote for folks who are, you know, they just get the medicine and they get the painkillers and they get everything. But for a lot of women still, even in the world, childbirth is something that is inherently painful. Um, but that pain has tremendous meaning. It's not just something to be avoided or resisted. The meaning is actually in the pain itself. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the, the, the last example that he gives is, uh, is virtue ethics, right? The idea that is not just, you know, particular to Islam, but most religious traditions that you have to suffer in order to inculcate virtue, whether it's patience, whether it's, you know, forbearance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's really, really interesting. And I'm glad that you brought mm -hmm. that up. Um, Let's deal with the, the second question. The second question was, okay, now we've made sense of the existence of evil, quote unquote, um, in the world. But how do we 
respond to the idea that religion is the cause of violence. Right. And this was something that was a almost like a mantra of the new atheist movement, which was that not only is religion untrue, but it's also bad, right? It's, it's, it's not just false, it's, it's, uh, it's harmful. Um, and the new atheism movement kind of rose and, and, and died out very quickly. The last, you know, international atheist conference that they were going to have in Australia had to be canceled because of a lack of uh, registration. Um, and <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. But what, if we examine this, you know, this idea, what was it, you know, what was the basis of this rhetoric, this idea that uh, religion was, uh, is the source of all violence and evil and whatnot? Um, first of all, uh, historically, it's very uninformed as a thesis. And uh, when you actually study, uh, you know, there's an interesting book called The Age of Atheism uh, by actually an atheist uh, historian, Peter Watson. And there's a chapter in it uh, about the Soviet Union called The Bolshevik Crusade for Scientific Atheism. And in this uh, chapter, you know, he details how um, under Stalin in, in the Soviet Union, there was a uh, very active campaign to try to eradicate uh, religion. And, and tr there were churches and mosques that were destroyed. There, you know, religious figures were tortured, mutilated uh, in, in very savage uh, ways. And uh, this was all under the, uh, the pretense that religion is something that is harmful uh, and that uh, human beings need to live, uh, uh, you know, without religion as, as atheists. Um, <clears throat> so the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, the uh, Soviet regime, and if you uh, include other uh, atheistic communist uh, regimes, these have been the most bloodiest uh, governments in, in human history. There's a term called democide, which is a government killing its own citizens, uh, which is, uh, and, and, you know, you look at the tens and tens of millions that are, are that have been accumulated in, in the death tolls in these governments, it's, it's horrific. So, the point of this is not to say, well, uh, atheism has also done bad things and, and, and therefore, you know, uh, violent actions in the name of religious extremists are, are just kind of canceled out. The point of this is to say that human beings are able to manipulate any ideology uh, that they want uh, for the sake of furthering their own political agenda. Uh, and for the sake of, uh, you know, uh, for the sake of violence. And we see that in, in you know, if anything, uh, the, uh, the atheist agenda was uh, manipulated in the worst way to, uh, to uh, cause violence. But really any human ideology can, can, can do that. And when people have deep-seated religious sensibilities, it's only expected that uh, violent political groups that emerge in those regions will use those uh, religious languages, or they'll frame their arguments in the rhetoric of religion in order to try to uh, mobilize support for them. Uh, and this was something Even the CIA sort of admitted that when it came to Afghanistan in the 80s, right? They had the option between several sort of uh, dissident groups to fund and train, and they picked the religious guys because, according to them, you know, the religious zealots would fight more, you know, better. Uh, so right. this is something that everybody recognizes. Yeah, so so there's the problem. It's like uh, you know the the example that people often give is you know you, you have somebody uh, who's drunk driving. Is the problem the vehicle or is the problem the driver? Right? Is the problem uh, religion or is the problem the instrumentalization of religion or the weaponization of religious rhetoric for violent ends? And when you actually examine uh, the Islamic teachings on the subject, you find that that provides a clear uh, antidote to this kind of uh, violent. Uh, uh, thinking, because the Quran provides, you know, in, in numerous verses, uh, clear principles of, of justice, of principles of even in, in, in situations of, of military engagement, the protection of of non-combatants, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, it was actually the subject of the first article that I wrote for Yapin Institute, uh, which was called uh, "Forever on uh, on Trial: Islam and the Charge of Violence." Mm -hmm. the, just kind of conveying this idea that whenever something uh, some act of violence would happen, it would always be Islam that would go on trial rather than the, the actual individual perpetrator of the act. Mm. And we could also um, direct, in addition, we're going to have to ha put a lot of your papers in the links <laughs> below the video when it comes out. But in addition, um, readers can, or viewers can avail themselves of William Kavanaugh's The Myth of Religious Violence as a, as a, a good book to go to. Right to see this sort of thing in action. Uh, there's so much to say about the topic. Uh, you know, the, the most violent 
century in the history of human existence has been this most secular one, right? Mm-hmm. In the, the 1900s with the world wars and, and atomic weapons and things like that. Um, also just the particular sort of, there's another, let's say historical particularism about sort of the European uh, ex, uh, experience with religion and it's sort of traumatic experience with what's known as the European wars of religion. Um, and that came to be a, a trauma that is sort of read and projected upon all peoples in all times that we still honestly are suffering from. Uh, so a whole lot can be said about that topic and, and our viewers, uh, I think have gotten some good, some good, uh, good avenues or for further research on that. Um, one last question before we wrap up here. Um, we're going to come back to to the idea of of science because a lot of people they have this doctrine that they believe in the doctrine of progress, and they put sort of religion in this, or they make sense of religion historically as part of some sort of evolutionary product. Where okay, there might have been a time when religion was sort of needed to explain what goes bump in the night, but now we have science. Now we have rationality. Now we have uh, progress. And so science has replaced religion and we're not in any need of it any further. How would you respond to this? So there was an interesting article uh, in the New York Times, I believe it was in 2007. It's generated a lot of uh, debate and was written by an um, astrophysicist named Paul Davies, a cosmologist. And the title of the article was Taking Science on Faith. And the argument that he was making in the article is that, you know, people tend to think that science has nothing to do with religion and, uh, you know, faith is, is the most unscientific thing. But actually, in order for science to work, it depends on certain uh, conceptual foundations that actually came out of theology. And so of those conceptual foundations that science depends on is the idea that our uh, human minds are actually able to uncover truths about the universe, that the universe is intelligible, that it is something that can be understood, that the universe is governed according to fixed regularities or what are called laws, right? And the language of uh, natural laws uh, that is used in physics and and, and so forth came out of uh, religious verbiage, right? The idea that God has ordered the universe according to these uh, fixed principles. These are the laws that God has created the universe according to. And Uh, In order for science to work, it needs to have these assumptions in place. The idea that if I'm going to do an experiment, uh, I'm going to get the same results tomorrow as I would today, that the laws are unchanging. Um, that these that they're fixed, Uh, among other, uh, you know, conceptual foundations as well. So rather than science actually uh, being an enterprise that goes against faith, in order for science to function correctly, it depends on uh, very deep-rooted theological foundations. And I recently wrote an article uh, about what Islamic theology has to say about the philosophy of science. And that's, a, you know, a very <laughs> big topic and perhaps another conversation. But the basic idea is that, you know, theology gives us metaphysics, which uh, allows us to extract uh, principles of epistemology, and epistemology allows us to inform our philosophy of science, and that allows us to shape and advance uh, the progress of, uh, of science itself. So in a very deep sense, this, there's a, a relationship between religion and, and science that a lot of people uh, don't appreciate. Now, the other thing that's really important about this is that you know, the whole dichotomy between religion versus science is something that comes out of again, uh, Western European thought, and doesn't actually make sense on an Islamic framework. And that goes back to your point of people projecting their experiences uh, in Christian Europe, projecting those experiences on religion in general. Because from the Islamic standpoint, what is religious knowledge and what is scientific knowledge? The, you know, uh, the Quran talks about ayat, it talks about signs, and it talks about signs of God in scripture, which the scholars call ayat al-Qur'aniyah, and it talks about signs of God in nature or the universe, which uh, you, you can call ayat al-Kawniyah. And the Quran uses the term ayat for both. So when you are studying the natural sciences, if you're studying the human body or you're studying astronomy, you are studying the signs of God. And so that is religious knowledge, and it is scientific knowledge. And when you are studying uh, you know, the, the, the verses of the Quran, or you're studying Hadith of the Prophet, so, so, you are studying the signs of God in Revelation. 
And that is also religious knowledge. It's also scientific knowledge in the sense that Muslim scholars developed a science around this and, you know, a, a empirical science of collecting data and evidence to formulate conclusions. So there is no bifurcation between these two domains from an Islamic perspective. There is, you know, all knowledge is knowledge of the signs of God. It's either the signs of God in scripture or the signs of God in nature. So even from the get-go, that whole presumption of a conflict between science and religion doesn't work from the Islamic perspective. Yeah, no, that's that's excellently stated. And I think that um, when I when I think about where we sit historically, I think that Islam is so well positioned to solve sort of all of the both historical and present traumas and problems of the West. Um, and this is one of them, right? The the sort of I don't think it's benefited anybody. The uh, uh, rivalry and the enmity and the animosity between science and faith. Um, and uh, Islam and Islamic history, I think, can demonstrate to people how those two things need not be in uh, in rivalry to one another. In fact, that they can complement each other. And, and honestly, we get the best out of both when they do complement each other. And if we separate them, then we kind of end up with caricatures uh, each of the other. Um, Dr. Nazar, thank you so much for your time today. It was a wonderful conversation. Do you have any final comments you'd like to leave the listeners with? Well, khair. I uh, really appreciated the opportunity. And uh, alhamdulillah, it's great that we have, uh, you know, uh, these kind of conversations uh, available. And we encourage the listeners to check out the uh, Yaqeen articles and to send in their, their feedback and maybe suggested topics for, for future as well. Yes, excellent. And I'm sure we're, we're going to have you back again soon, inshallah, for, for, for future inshallah. discussions. So I look forward to that, inshallah. Ta'ala. Okay, well, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Dr. Nazar, and thank you to our viewers once again. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha ant. Astaghfirullah wa tubu ilaik. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullah.